All right. Well, it has been uh, mentioned a couple times already that today is Palm Sunday, where the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem is celebrated. Uh, they waved palm branches, cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But since we, we covered this event fairly recently in the Gospel of Matthew, I thought we would continue with the Gospel of Matthew because where we happen to be at right now is chapter 24 where Jesus talks about in the greatest detail in the Gospel of Matthew and pretty much anywhere. He talks about his second coming, his second triumphant entry. And so even though we, uh, so since we looked at this last, uh, just a few months ago, I thought we would look at chapter 24 since that's where we're at and just see what Jesus talks about and how he expresses the expectations of his second coming. And like most Christians, I'm interested in what the future holds when it comes to the return of Christ. I am not obsessed about it. Uh, some folks are really into this. Entire denominations have been formed around the idea of Christ's second coming. Uh, a lot of books have been written about it, a lot of TV shows, movies. There's been, it has inspired the imagination, for better or for worse, uh, of people for pretty much ever since Christianity was formed. But I'm interested in it because I find it very intriguing that by some accounts, uh, especially when you look at the, the Old Testament prophecies, about 80% of the Old Testament prophecies have already come true, which gives us a lot of reason to believe that the next 20% are likely to also come true. When you have an 80% has already happened, it's pretty uh, easy to say the next 20% are likely to happen. Now, admittedly, the numbers like 80% and 20% are a little bit subjective to interpretation, but in general, a lot of scholars look at these things, and uh, especially the book of Daniel, which we'll talk about a little bit more, that most of these things have already happened. And so we can look forward to with confidence about what is going to happen. And that's what chapter 24 in the Gospel of Matthew talks about. Both chapters 24 and 25 are about the, the second coming of Christ. Chapter 24 is more about the events itself. Chapter 25 is, is, is talking more about the heart attitude and preparation for it. So today we're going to go through chapter 24, and we're going to go through the whole thing. And I know that it's not going to answer everyone's questions. It's going to probably inspire more questions than answer. But we're going to also look at a possibility of a direction we can go, and I'm going to talk to you about it at the end of the sermon. And I need some in input from you guys. So in chapter 24, there are a number of signs that Jesus talks about. And whether those are four signs or five or six signs, depending on how people uh, kind of split up what he talks about. There's a series of signs that Jesus talks about when he when he's, uh, is making reference to his second coming. And the chapter begins with Jesus beginning this conversation. He throws out this, this uh, teaching that, in, that causes the disciples to later approach him and ask him to give them more details. So let's get right into it because we have a lot to cover. Matthew 24, uh, chapter 1 verse 1 says this, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him and to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asks? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. So Jesus begins this conversation his disciples, it seems like they're saying, what do you think of these buildings? Aren't they magnificent? You know, because Herod the Great had tried to build this temple that was going to be the greatest temple ever seen. And Jesus isn't impressed. He says, you know, all these buildings, not a single stone will remain upon one or the other. The whole thing is going to be torn down. 
Now, there's some folks that say that this is kind of a, uh, a, a, uh, a perspective that Matthew has upon the teaching when Jesus says, if this temple is torn down, I will rebuild it in three days. But I don't think it is. I think Jesus probably talked about the temple quite a bit. And we only have a few, few uh, little instances in the Gospels of his teachings. Because you have to remember, to the Jews, we talked about it, that faithfulness to the land, faithfulness to the temple, and faithfulness to the traditions is how they define themselves. So temple would be a big, big deal. And I believe that Jesus probably spoke about the temple quite often. And this time, he's just talking about a straightforward prophecy or prediction about the destruction of the temple which to Jewish ears would pretty much mean that the presence of God has been removed from earth. So this is an astonishing thing for him to say. But it takes place in 70 AD, about 40 years or so after Christ's resurrection. The Romans had enough with Jewish uprisings, and they came and they destroyed the temple to indeed try to kill Judaism. They felt like if we destroy the temple, Judaism itself will die and this troublesome people will be out of our hair. And so they came and they destroyed the temple and they did exactly what Jesus said. They completely dismantled it and they pushed the rocks off of Temple Mount. And to this day, you can go, archaeologists have dug up around the, uh, the, the terrace or the plateau that Herod created where the temple was. You, there's sections of the temple still around the 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 mount there. You can find it to this day. And so this prediction comes true, this prophecy comes true quite soon after Christ. But it intrigues the disciples. And it says that they came to him later. It says this, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when, this will when, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. So they're expecting one sign, and Jesus actually gives them several signs. But he begins his teaching with the most important thread that runs through the entire chapter when he says this, watch out that no one deceives you. You're going to find this idea of deception all throughout chapter 24, and this is Jesus' prime concern. Watch out that nobody deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. The Christ means I am the Messiah, I am the Savior. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. So the first thing Jesus tells his disciples is the signs that you would expect are not the signs that you should be looking for. There are going to be wars. And when you're in the middle of a war, as I imagine we could hear from people who are, who are suffering in this Ukrainian war, when you're in the middle of a war, it feels like the world is coming to an end. Anyone that's been through a war would tell you when, as their buildings around them have been devastated, there's no more food, there's no more water, people are dying around them, bodies are piling up in the streets. It seems like the end of the world. And Jesus is telling them, these things are going to happen. Not just that they're going to happen, such things must happen. But they are not the signs leading to the end. But, he says, as these things begin to happen more and more frequently and with more and more intensity, that should be a sign you need to be aware, like birth pangs, that something is coming. 
but wars in and of themselves and rumors of war in and of themselves and things like earthquakes and famines, those things that when you're in the middle of it, it feels like the world is literally breaking apart around you. Jesus says, don't be disturbed. That's not going to be the sign of the end. There are different signs, and those signs are coming. And then he gets into it. The first sign he really talks about after the temple is the sign of persecution. He says, then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love for most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. So the first real sign that we're, we're coming close to the end is this intense persecution. And it's not just a persecution from the outside. It's a persecution from the inside. He says many at that time will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. I think most of the time as Christians we think of persecution as being something the world does from the outside, but Jesus emphasizes that a lot of this persecution is going to come from the inside where the church, where people in the church will turn against one another. And there will be false prophets and teachers within the church. And people will hate each other within the church, or at least what we call the church. And there will be an intense disruption of the community of faith. Because when love is lost, that thing that unifies us is lost. Without love, the church cannot survive. And so, this will happen. The love will grow cold in many people. They will turn and they will hate one another. And we will be de- the church will be devoured pretty much from the inside. And yet within this time of massive dysfunction, where there isn't unity within the church, where there's persecution from the outside and, and division from within the inside, still the gospel is going to be preached around the world. The purpose of Christ, the purpose of God, and the kingdom of God cannot be undone, even if the church, which is to be the bride of Christ, which is to be the light, which is to be salt, which is to be advancing the kingdom of God, even if they are dysfunctional from within and totally tearing themselves apart, the gospel will continue. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So in spite of all of our human weaknesses and brokenness and whatever goes on within the deceptions that take place, the gospel is still going to be preached, and it's going to go to all the nations. And then the end will come, and we're gonna, we'll talk about that maybe in, uh, a little bit more in depth later on. Not today, but later. And then we're told that there is a leader which is going to appear in the holy place. And that holy place has been defined in different ways over the years. Some say it's Jerusalem. Some have said it's the Vatican. Some have said it's you know, other places in the world. Most people assume, it, or and this is an assumption because we don't exactly know, that that holy place is in a rebuilt temple, which you see if you know anything about kind of Christianity today in the world, there's a movement within Jerusalem today. There's people that want to rebuild the temple. Some of them, most, none of them are Christians, or very few of them are Christians. There's this movement to restore the temple in Judaism. If you ever visit Jerusalem, you'll come across this. 
And you'll, you'll see that they've even built the menorahs. They've made the, uh, the garments for the priests. They're breeding cattle to have a certain type of cattle that is going to be suitable for sacrifice. These things are happening right now. The big debate about the temple is, of course, upon Temple Mount, you have the Dome of the Rock, which is not a mosque. It's just a place of, of worship for Muslims. But you do also have a mosque called the Black Mosque. And how you're going to put the temple up there with the dome, there's all kinds of talking about that as well. So these things are happening around us. So he says this, So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. That's us. Let those who are in Judah flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one go into the field to go get his cloak. How dreadful. It will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. In those day, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. So whoever this abomination that causes desolation is, is going to take the world down a very dark path. It will be a path of misery and destruction, which Jesus says has never been as intense as it will be then, and it will never be that intense afterward. This is going to be literally the worst time in human history. It is going to be awful. You can't even, you can't even probably find words for it. You know, folks that pray, Lord, hasten the day of your return, sometimes I wonder, do you realize what you're asking? You're asking to be the generation that goes through the most awful time in human history ever. Now, maybe that's a, something you want to be in for, but just to have a heads up, you, we need to understand as Christians that if we are that generation, it is going to be terrible, and we have to be ready for that. Because that's one reason why the scripture says a lot of people will fall away. It's going to be awful. And who this, and, the, and Jesus refers to the, uh, the book of Daniel because the book of Daniel is to the Old Testament what the book of Revelation is to the New Testament. The book of Revelation hadn't been written when Jesus is talking about this. So the book of Daniel is a, an apocalyptic book of prophecy. It has things in it which tap in the time of Daniel but it has a section in it which is very similar to the book of Revelation. In fact, the part that was read this morning from Daniel talks about that judgment where the books are opened and people are, are judged. That takes place, it's more fleshed out in the book of Revelation. So the book of Daniel, the reason why Jesus refers to the book of Daniel is that that is that apocalyptic book. And when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man in that passage we read this morning, that is also where he gets that image, one like a Son of Man ascending to the courts of heaven where he is then given authority over all things. Jesus takes that title for himself. That's why he calls himself Son of Man because he's taking it from this apocalyptic book of Daniel. So within this misery, of course there's going to be a longing for relief. Because it is going to be miserable. Like he says here, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. It is a stress. This is distress is unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. 
So within this, there is going to be a longing for relief, which is understandable. And within that longing are going to enter false teachers, false prophets, in order to bring people false hope, in order to deceive them. And again, Jesus is very clear that this is the main issue he has. You cannot allow yourself to be deceived. He says, for at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, and there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear, and they will perform great signs and miracles in order to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So these aren't going to just be teachers. They're going to be miracle workers. They will perform signs and wonders that will be likely will be bring some sort of temporary relief to the terrible situation that the world is going to find itself in. And so Jesus says again, see, I have told you this ahead of time. So if anyone tells you there he is out in the desert, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner room, do not believe it. Again, this is the primary concern Jesus has about as we come close to the end of time, end of days. Do not be deceived. Do not get sucked in by false teachers who claim to be the Messiah. Do not get sucked in even by acts of wonder and miracles. Do not believe it. And he tells us this. He, he makes it very specific in verse 23. I have told you ahead of time. I have told you ahead of time. Know that this is going to happen. Understand it. Do not get sucked in to lies. And he knows that the desire for relief in those terrible years is going to be very, very strong. And he knows that that pain and the misery that the world is going to be in is going to be an open door for false teachers to work in false hope but just like a trail leading off the cliff these false teachers will leave a trail of false hope and lies that is going to lead probably billions of people into death and darkness Jesus says I'm told you ahead of time do not be deceived and then he says this is how you know I'm coming he says for as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west so will be the coming of the Son of Man. He uses that title. And he has this image from Daniel where it says, I saw one like a Son of Man ascending unto heaven. Here there's one like the Son of Man ascending on the cloud, as it were, into earth. So he uses these images out of Daniel. For wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. The point that Jesus is making here is that his second coming will be unmistakable. It will be unmistakable. At that time, the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Again, this is imagery you can find in, in Daniel. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens or the other. The point, again, that Jesus is making is that his coming will be unmistakable. It will be unmistakable to Christians. 
It will be unmistakable to non-Christians. It will be such an event that it will leave no doubt whatsoever as to what is happening. And the nations that have rejected him will recognize it and they will mourn their decision to reject him. Christians will see it and they will recognize that this is the hope that we have been waiting for. But the point that he's making is it will be unmistakable. So how do we not be deceived? Well, if there's any question, any niggling doubt in your mind, if someone says, oh, you should go listen to this guy, or you should go listen to this woman, they're like, the person of God, they're like, I believe that the, the, the second coming of Christ, which has happened. People have claimed the sec- that they were the second coming of Christ. A big example, if you're from, the, uh, from Asia, was Reverend Sun Young Moon. Uh, he claimed that he was Christ returned. And millions of people followed him in South Korea and around the world. The Moonies is who they are. And he claimed that he was Jesus Christ, the second coming. And Jesus is saying it is unmistakable, which means if there is any niggling doubt in the back of your head as to whether or not this person is truly the Messiah, then the answer is they are not. Any doubt cancels out any claim of being Messiah. Because when he comes back, there will be no doubt. There will be no room for doubt. As a lightning is seen in the east all the way to the west, Everyone will see what is happening. It will leave no doubt. So if you are ever intrigued by someone who claims that they have some kind of messianic role in the world, and there's any part of your mind that goes, eh, I'm not so sure, then they're disqualified. There's no doubt. Do not be deceived, and there will be no doubt. And then Jesus gives a sense of a little bit of how long this is going to take. There's a big pause, obviously, between the destruction of the temple, which happens relatively early in these signs, I think just so that people can get a sense that, wow, this is really going to happen, because it was inconceivable to them that the temple would be destroyed, just like it was inconceivable to many people that the nation of Israel would ever be reestablished. In 1948, that was an inconceivable thing when that took place that the nation of Israel was reestablished? What nation has ever come back on the map after being gone for almost 2,000 years? That's never happened. So he says, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know the end is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So what he's saying is that once this begins, once you see the signs begin to, take, to start to roll, the big massive persecution, the, the, false, the just deluge of false teachers, people coming claiming to be the Messiah, because there's a big difference with someone saying, well, I'm going to teach the prosperity gospel, for example, which is a total heresy. There's a difference between that person and the person who's claiming to be Jesus returned. He says, You're going to, we're going to have people claiming to be Christ. And they will not only be Christ, they'll claim to be Christ, they will perform miracles and signs and wonders, probably very similar to what Jesus did. So people who have a very shallow understanding of faith will go, well, there he is, he's doing signs and wonders. He says, once that begins, that generation that's living during that time is going to basically experience the whole thing. And this becomes a question, how long is that? Some people say a generation in the Bible is measured in 40 years, so is there a 40-year time? Some people talk about the time of tribulation being around seven years. We don't really, these become areas that people debate. But he says that once you see these things happening, understand what it is you're seeing. 
But again, he falls back to the place that his return is going to be unmistakable. But it's going to also be unpredictable. And this is kind of the, this is the place where Christians throughout history have struggled with. It'll be unmistakable, but it's going to also be unpredictable. It says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day and hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but, but only the Father. And we've discussed that quite a bit in the past. If people have questions about that, we can talk about it after the service. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days of the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. In other words, they were completely unprepared. The world was going along as if life was going to not be, that life was just going to continue day to day the way they had known it from the day they were born. They had no idea what was coming. And in fact, Noah goes up in the ark, and the people are like, wonder what he's doing in the big boat, making fun of him. And it says, and they knew nothing about what would happen in the time of Noah. They were clueless. Even though Noah, the scripture tells us he had, he had been preaching to them about their sin and lack of righteousness, they had no idea what was going to come until the flood came and took them all away. And that's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. It'll be completely unexpected. And the world around us won't be looking for it. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other one left. Two women left grinding at the hand mill. One will be taken, the other left. Therefore, keep watch. You do not know what day your Lord will come. And that's chapter 24. There's a ton of stuff packed into this chapter. And there's a lot of questions it leaves. And there's a lot of concepts that Jesus touches upon that have deeply influenced Christianity over the years. And the question I think a lot of us ask when we go through something like this is, well, what should we make of all this? Because it's certainly not difficult to see a lot of these things happening in our world today, right? You don't have to be a, a theologian to see that a lot of these things take place in our world today. But I need to, to give you a little story out of history. After the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., what happened to Christianity? Christianity, after the temple was destroyed, was under intense persecution from both the Romans and from the Jews. But actually, the Jewish persecution by this time had kind of given way to the Roman persecution. If you read the book of Acts, you see that the first persecution the church suffers is from Jewish leaders that were very threatened by the idea of Jesus being the Messiah. But then this gives way to Roman persecution because the Christians didn't worship the gods of Rome. They were considered atheists. Isn't that interesting? They were considered atheists because they didn't worship the gods of Rome. I, find it, I found that interesting when I had to apply to be a resident here in Germany. I had to put either I was Catholic, Protestant, or no religion. And in order not to pay church tax, but to tie it to this church, I had to put no religion. And I found that very strange to put on a form that I have no religion. But that was kind of where they were at. The, the, you know, it, it, on that form, it's the two you know, only considered uh, real churches, apparently, were the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church, and then there was, after that was no religion. Kind of interesting. But during this time of persecution, there also came early in the church lots of heresies. 
Some of the heresies were very strange. Some had that Jesus was like a hologram of God. He never really touched the ground. He kind of hovered above the ground. He wasn't a real person. Uh, it's a very kind of uh, science fiction-y kind of understanding of Christ, and yet it happened 2,000 years ago. It kind of appeals to the science fiction geek in me. If I had a favorite heresy, it's Jesus is a hologram, because I just find it so bizarre. But there are other ones, like Jesus was really just possessed by the Holy Spirit. He's just a guy. And then he gets baptized, and he gets possessed by the Holy Spirit as baptism when the Spirit descends upon him. And then upon the cross, he's abandoned by the Holy Spirit, which is why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And both of those, that understanding of Christ is clearly a demonstration of not an understanding of the Scripture at all. But that was a popular one. You had all kinds of strange heresies coming up. And in fact, some of them are still today. Like the heresy that Jesus is the first creation of God and is, is the prince of the angels, but he's not divine. He's not the word of God made flesh. He's the first creation of God. That happens early in the church, and yet that is still the same heresy taught today by the Jehovah's Witnesses. So there's nothing new under the sun. Most of the heresies and false faiths today, who, who try and call themselves Christian, have the same nonsense that we see back in the early formation of the church. Satan is not all that creative. He's persistent, he's clever, but he's not very creative. He uses the same lies again and again and again. And then, though, in the early church, so, they, so they, they see the temple destroyed, they come under persecution, all these false teachings pop up, and then in 312 A.D. at the Milvane Bridge near Rome, a contender for the whole, to be the only Roman emperor, a guy named Constantine, said he saw a sign in the heavens by which he was told, under this sign, go forth and conquer. And he believed that this was a sign from the Christian God. And after he wins the battle of Milvane Bridge and consolidates Rome, he uses Christianity as one of the, well, Christianity rises in its, in its regard in the Roman Empire. And by 325, almost, what, less than 20 years after this happens, the church is so favored by Emperor Constantine that he poured money on them to build churches. He had them come together for councils. One was The first one was the Council of Nicaea so that the leadership could work out some of their theology. And the people who attended that council, it's written in the notes that some of them still bore the signs of martyrdom in that they came with eyes that had been gouged out. They had the scars from being tortured. And they believed that they were standing in the presence of the coming kingdom of God. Because the very emperor who is known as far as east is to west, the great emperor Constantine, was being taught that this is the coming of Christ. The empire of Rome stretches as east as far as people knew. And it went as west as far as people knew. And he is in favor of the church. And they believed they were in the beginning of the good days when Christ had returned and was reigning and bringing righteousness to the world. Were they right? No. History would tell us they weren't. They weren't that, that wasn't it. There's a lot of things that, that were there, but there's a lot of things that aren't there that didn't take place. And in fact, looking back over time, a lot of people believe that Constantine's favor of the church led to the church becoming very shallow and as after Constantine begins to favor the church, what do you see happening within the church? You see a lot of paganism coming into the church. 
because the gods of Rome were just changed from being gods of Rome to being saints. And the relics of the, of the gods of Rome just became the relics of the knucklebone of Peter or the, or, the, or the trousers of Andrew, you know, whatever they had. And you started this deep, deep dive into basically paganism. So no, this wasn't it. If you were around during the year 2000 and you were a Christian, you, got a, you heard a lot about this is it. Because what was going on in the year 2000? Well, people, for whatever reasons, got it in their head that the calendar changed, which is a somewhat arbitrary thing that we just sort of put into place, uh, is they're blessed by God, and when we go from year 1999 to 2000, that's it. Jesus is coming back. And I don't know if you guys were believers at that time or you were aware of what was going on, but it was crazy. Because also you had the whole Saddam Hussein thing going on back then, and people were saying, well, there's Babylon rising up. He's the Antichrist. Here we go. End of days. Nope, that wasn't it. So we need to understand that there are these signs that we have given to us by God, by Christ. He tells us. But we have to be careful not to get so caught up into it that we lose sight of really what's going on. He is very clear. All these things will be happening at the same time. Not just a few things, not just this and not just that. It's going to all be happening at the same time. And it will be, again, awful. And his return is going to, again, be unmistakable. There will be no room for doubt. However, within these verses, there are many topics which have captured the imagination of of Christianity pretty much from the very beginning. And I made a list that are just found in chapter 24 here. And this is by no means exhaustive. But just to give you a sense of how many things Jesus touches on here and how many of these things have affected the way Christian thought has gone over the years, here's some of them. He touches on the role of and the rebuilding of the temple. Now, for many years, people didn't give that much thought until just recently when when Israel was reestablished and it became a real possibility that the temple could be rebuilt. You know, the, the nation of Israel actually took Temple Mount militarily in 1967. They took it. And the Arabs were freaked out. They thought the Israelis were going to for sure blow up the Dome of the Rock and blow up the Black Mosque. And the Israelis chose not to because they thought this would galvanize the whole Arab world against us. So they chose not to. But they took the Mount. There's pictures of it. Israeli soldiers on the Mount. If you go visit Jerusalem, you'll see the scars on the walls of some of the gates where the tanks just pounded their way through because they were too wide to get through the gate. So they just kept going until they got through. You can see it to this day. And this really sparked this idea of, my goodness, maybe this temple is going to actually be rebuilt. Secondly, how Christians understand the presence of false messiahs and the events which threaten our world. You know, every time something big happens, people start saying, this is it, this is the end. And then you get some false messiahs, people there claiming that they have a special word from God. And man, history tells us People within the church who claim Jesus is Lord and a lot of peripheral people who kind of know the story but haven't really bought in, they get sucked into these guys and women. The role of persecution and how Christianity understands itself. Persecution is just part of the DNA of Christianity and how Christians, Christians have always had persecution as kind of part of the equation of how they understood themselves. 
Sometimes it's a legitimate thing. Sometimes it's not legitimate. But we, it, I think it'd be an interesting thing for us to understand how prophecy of, I mean, how persecution colors how we see things. And very often people will cry out persecution just because they're not getting their way. There's a difference between not getting your way and being persecuted. But it's been a part of Christian, Christian for a long time. Keeping faith alive, not growing cold. That place of perseverance, that has been another thing that is just within the DNA of Christianity. What does it mean to persevere? And how has this been lived out over the years? What well, is it? The motive of evangelism and hastening the return of Christ. He says, you know, when the whole world knows, then the end will come. That verse has motivated evangelism, particularly in the 20th century, to make translations in every known tongue, to broadcast when radio broadcast became a thing. There's still ministries to this day that are set up radio towers around the world to broadcast the Christian message into places which are difficult to get into. Like you're not allowed into because of political reasons or whatever. There's a huge movement. I knew a guy, I knew a, a woman whose brother, that's what he did. He went around and erected these towers to broadcast. And they're motivated completely by this idea that once everyone hears the gospel, Jesus will come because the scripture says and the end will come. It's interesting how, that, how these Things have affected us as a, as a whole. The role of prophecy. Christians are completely confused about prophecy, I've found, throughout the years. They don't, they don't really understand what is the difference between a predictive thing, what does prophecy mean if you're speaking as the person of God, what does it mean? The idea of the tribulation. He says, if this time were not cut short, there would be no one who survived. This has led to this whole theology around the tribulation. The tribulation is that time that I said just is horrible and difficult. And there's all these theories around it. Uh, and then it ties into the, the theory of the rapture. Are we taken up to be with Christ before that tribulation? Are we taken up to be with Christ in the middle of it? Are we taken up to be with Christ at the end of it? What does it mean if he's, when he says, if these days were not cut short, no one would survive? This has caused a lot of division within the church, which is kind of, I find, strange that we would divide over whether or not it's pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib rapture. And we kind of laugh about it sometimes because it's just kind of strange that we, that we really focus on these things. But I had a friend who went to a Bible school that if you did not sign the paper that said, I believe that we will have a pre-tribulation, post-millennial rule of Christ rapture, then you wouldn't, you wouldn't graduate. They wouldn't give you your certificate. They made that the litmus test of truth. What do you believe about the rapture and the tribulation? Jesus brings up how Christians should approach the performance of miracles and wonders. And we have people to this day, right now, that will say they're, they're performing miracles and wonders. How should we approach that? Especially given, depends on what claim they're making at the same time. Because there has to be this balance, right? Does God still work in miraculous ways in the world? I would say yes. But if a person's claiming to be a Messiah and they're doing these things, that's a whole different story. How do we approach these things? Even to this day, it causes confusion. That idea of the second coming of Christ, that it will be unmistakable. You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses say that the second coming's already happened. That he came as the Spirit of God, which hardly anyone noticed, and he's living in New York at the Watchtower building on the top floor. And millions of people follow that nonsense. Yeah, it's crazy. I understand the laughter, man. We should not waste time trying to predict the day and the hour of Christ's coming, and yet people do all the time. And lives are destroyed. 
Faith, faith is destroyed. People throw up their hands. They, they walk away from the church because this predictive day and time doesn't come about. And it happens all over the world. The idea of rapture just in general and then Christian readiness. What does it mean to be ready? And so this is what I want to ask and get some feedback from you. These are all things that Jesus talks about in chapter 24. He just touches on them, bing, 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 bing. And a lot of people think this is all in the book of Revelation, but actually chapter 24 of Matthew is where most of this stuff sits. Book of Revelation fleshes out some ideas, but there's nothing new in the book of Revelation that isn't already in the book of Daniel, at least in its kind of most basic form, and in this chapter. Book of Revelation kind of fleshes out ideas already in the book of Daniel and from this chapter. And I just want to know, I want to hear from you what you'd like to do, because I think it'd be interesting to go through and just take a Sunday to touch on most of these topics here. Not to spend a whole lot of time on each one, but just kind of go through each one of these, maybe combine some, uh, and then come back to the Gospel of Matthew again. But I don't want to just kind of impose my inner theological geek on you. Uh, If this isn't something that you'd find all that interesting, uh, we can just continue in the Gospel of Matthew. So next week, obviously, is Easter. And, uh, and we'll, uh, I know what that sermon's going to be about. But then after that, if, we wanna, if you want to go into some of these, and then we'll come back into uh, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we can do that. Just let me know what you would be interested in. And I'll just kinda, I need to get a feel from folks, because I don't want to take us in a way that you're like, I want to finish Matthew. I don't want to go on a detour. But at the same time, I know these things are intriguing to people. They want to have some answers to them. So I'm just throwing that out there. I'm willing to go either direction that you guys feel like would be meaningful to you. But I want to end with this thought. I believe one reason why Jesus told us all this stuff is going on is so that even in the darkest of days, we can still be a people who rejoice. Because by having these signs, we know, even when the world is falling apart around us, and if we, are, if we have to be that generation, if we are that generation that is that last day's generation, and we're in the midst of the misery of it, we can rejoice because we know all this is planned. And in that rejoice, we know that we know where this is going to end. While the whole rest of the world is crumbling around us and in deep, dark despair, Christians can be people still of hope and light because we know this is going toward the second coming of Christ. And I think this is one reason why Jesus tells us this. He tells us this so we will not be deceived. He's very concerned about being deceived, us being deceived but also that we would have hope. That in these dark times, we don't just throw up our hands and say, God has abandoned us. And that in these dark times, we don't just look towards someone to give us relief, anyone to give us relief. Because it's that desperate desire for relief that's going to mislead a lot of people into eternal darkness. He's telling us this so that one, we can be ready, but secondly, that even in our afflictions, We can be a people that rejoice because we understand these things are happening and there's a greater thing waiting just around the corner. If we can persevere to the end, he who perseveres, she who perseveres to the end will be saved. We'll have that hope. We'll be in the very presence of God. And so may we rejoice while the days are good But we need to also be a people that are able to stiffen our spiritual spine when it comes to the idea that it's not going to always be good. You need to be ready. We need to be ready. 
Whether or not it happens in our lifetime, I don't know. I'm not going to predict that. I know from history that there have been a lot of things happening in the world that were much more intense that are happening right now. I've told you before, I read a book written in 1942 that was all about this is the end. The whole world, as far as they knew, was at war. You had the Antichrist and Hitler. You had the Beast and Mussolini. And this guy was like, this is it. And just like the early church, you could take a lot of these things and impose it on it and go, yeah, it seems to fit. But you know what? wasn't it <laughs> so we have to be aware we have to be awake but at the same time we can't be obsessed to the point where we lose track of who our hope really is and always is it's not in an event it's in the person it's not in this our hope isn't really found in the second coming our hope is found in what jesus christ has already done upon the cross our hope is found in the resurrection that's where our hope is and so we need to be careful, especially now. We're in another time. We're in another time of war and rumors of war. But you know, the Ukrainian conflict isn't the only one going on in the world today. There's like over 20 other armed conflicts going on in the world today. We're just very aware of the Ukrainian one because it's close to us, and maybe for some other reasons as well. But these things must happen according to our Savior. And when he comes, you will know it without a doubt. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this word that you give us. And it's a word which the church has grappled with ever since you spoke them. And Father, we pray that you give us clarity and understanding that while these things are before us, that our hope is not really in the event that you're describing. Our hope is in you. And may we be mindful not to be deceived. May we be a people that is not swayed by false promises and even demonstrations of power. But that we would keep our eyes on you. And Father, I don't know, and I make, make no claim to know uh, if these are last days or if we are that last generation. I pray that if we are then we can keep our eyes firmly on you as we go through terribly difficult times. I pray that if it's the generations that come after us, our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, that we could faithfully instruct and inform them that they need to be careful not to be deceived and to listen to your word and to follow you and only you. Lord, we do pray in times of difficulty like this, that there will be an end to war, that there will be, you will be the Prince of Peace, and yet we know that there will come a time when those prayers will simply not be answered because that's just not going to be the way it works. But until we know for sure that that is the case, we do pray for peace. We pray for the people in Ukraine. We pray for the people around the world, the various civil wars, the ethnic strife, the, the gang violences that go on, like, I don't know how you classify someone like Boko Haram and ISIS, other than just a bunch of thugs causing people's lives to be miserable, that you would bring peace. But if that's not to be, may we be strong and resolved, our eyes upon you, our faces forward, our backs stiff, facing whatever comes our way without fear knowing that these things must happen and that we have a hope for a greater glory coming. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.